Emrit Paul Singh, a well-known Sikh separatist, has attracted much attention recently to the growing Khalistan movement within the Punjab state of India. This growing movement, which has involved violent protests and the hardline response from the Indian government, has massively increased tension in the nation and brings us to a very turbulent situation. How we got here and what may happen next will be analyzed by our analysts upcoming on the global current. University, this is the Global Current. I'm your host, Drew Starbuck. With me today are two fellow Seton Hall students. Covering the domestic situation today, our analyst today is Juliana Mori. Hey, Juliana. Hi, Drew. Thank you for coming on the show. And focusing on the international aspect today is Christian LaFond. Hey, Christian. Hey, Drew. Thanks for coming on the show. So I just want to get into some background information, guys, for our listeners out there and just start with the basic question of who is Amrit Paul Singh? Amrit Paul Singh, Sikh separationist who incited violent riots that believe that Sikhs should have their own religious state called Khalistan within the Punjab state of India. This belief of an independent land for Sikhs is named the Khalistan movement. He's been involved in multiple anti-drug campaigns, social issues, and farmer protests in his region, which have allowed him to gain a positive image amongst the Sikhs in India, especially since they have a prominent role in the agricultural scene in India. He gained attention through his charismatic style of preaching and his advocacy that is viewed as pro-Sikh. In recent months, he has gained controversy for making threats against the Indian Home Minister by suggesting that he could meet the same end as Gandhi, a assassinated politician for stating the Khalistan movement is bad. Singh is accused of attempted murder, obstruction of law enforcement, and creating disharmony in society. So uh, that kind of got into my next question, Juliana, of what, how has he attracted so much attention and how has he generated controversy, so to speak? And you kind of outlined the threats to the Indian Home Minister, inciting violent protests to a certain extent in his desire to promote a Sikh separatist state within the Punjab region. Do you have anything to add to that, Christian, of just giving an overview of who this man is? Generally, Juliana here covered most of it. He has pushed for six to be more recognized. Um, but you did mention the Khalistan movement, and we did mention that earlier, Juliana, of there's a history of Sikh separatism within India. So I want to kind of ask this question to both of you generally of what is this, the Khalistan movement, and where do the origins of this movement come from? So the history behind the Khalistan movement is very interesting. There is this belief that there should be an autonomous state run by Sikhs for Sikhs, and it operates as a religious nation that would currently border the Punjab state of India. And that's just an approximated area of where people who believe in the Khalistan movement want it to be. And leaders within the Khalistan movement would have called for followers to assassinate members of Sikh officials that are deemed moderate and spread anti-Hindu propaganda in order for Khalistan to become an actual thing. This movement originated in the 1880s, but some suspect that it could have been even earlier. The belief of Khalistan began with the British colonies policing the uh, during the late 1800s during their colonization of India. Six were recruited into the British army in large numbers to use against Hindu rulers that rebelled against the 
British rulers, and after Indian independence in 1947, tensions between the state of Punjab and the central Indian government surfaced, leading to grievances among many Sikhs and Indian government. Sikhism does not have numbers to sustain or create Khalistan alone, which is important to know. Do you have anything to add on to that, Christian? Yeah, so she covered mostly everything up to the independence of India. So I'll go from the independence of India up to the modern day. The six separatists, the movement really started to gain traction in the 1930s, but around the mid-1900s, a man by the name of Jarnal Singh bin Ranwale started to increase the violence of the movement, pushing for a Sikh state a little bit harsher than had been pushed for before. And this is seen mainly in the Golden Temple Massacre, a bit of um, history behind that. The group, the Khalistan movement, made the Golden Temple, which is one of the preeminent holy sites in Sikhism, as their headquarters. They occupied the temple for two years for the prime minister at the time, Indira Gandhi, launched a military operation to force them to leave. The operation was actually a complete disaster. It almost led to the military itself being overrun because they underestimated the forces of uh, the Khalistan movement. And to make sure that they won the battle, they had to start indiscriminately slaughtering those in the temple. This included some pilgrims who were there, not as militants. This led to actually Indira Gandhi being assassinated, and that led to anti-Sikh riots. And that's close to where we are today. And I think you, Christian, just dived at a lot of the roots of the ethnic tension within the region, things like that. You mentioned that there was militants within the temple, but there was also many who were not militants who were making their pilgrimages there. Has there always been this more militant or side of the Khalistan movement, or has that been a change in recent times? So in the 1960s, the Green Revolution was something that really created a big agricultural movement in India. And there was a sentiment about the Sikh being a minority that is overshadowed severely and un unrepresented because of the overwhelming Hindi majority. And the Green Revolution specifically is a major increase in the production of food, especially with grains. And people who are sick often have jobs that have to do with agricultural aspects in India. So this revolution was major for them. And because of this move, because of this revolution, there have been many increased questions about the government's ability to successfully address issues such as poverty and inequalities and religious tensions because of this disparity in jobs and agricultural responsibilities. Mm -hmm. And so how did this lead to more tensions within the government, Juliana. You mentioned how there was the inability of the Indian government to deal with these issues, poverty, uh, effectively after the Green Revolution. But where did that actually lead to? Did that lead to more tension that has kind of led to a culmination of what we're seeing today? Or So the Indian government and the judiciary system have taken some positive steps to prosecute and convict leaders who are treasonous and criminal and deemed more violent and they're trying to take positive steps to prosecute those leaders involved in planning and carrying out violence and several individuals and high-level government leaders still have not been brought to justice 30 years later it just really shows the inability to 
focus and direct change in the Indian government. I did want to ask, because I know you mentioned the Green Revolution starting in the 1960s, Juliana, but like going into like the 1980s, there's been mentions of like the Sikh movement growing amidst like tension with the Indian government and the Indian government even then kind of sort of militarily cracking down on the Sikhs. Can you go into more depth on that? Yeah, so during the 80s, there are a lot of negotiations and like talks about equality or having more religious equality that's in, involved in all of India so that it's not as divided. And they were talking about creating a deal with different officials in New Delhi to resolve issues that the Sikhs felt that they had their own right to a nation state, but nothing has been addressed or moved forward since those original talks in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Turning away from the domestic situation for just a second, I want to turn to you, Christian, and look at the international responses to the current protests, particularly the response to Singh's arrest. Do you have any details to give on how certain countries reacted compared to others? Yes. So there's generally been a pretty solid response amongst most countries that Singh is indeed a terrorist or at the very least a criminal. There are exceptions to this. Canada has been very quiet on the subject for reasons that I can go into. But generally, the United States, Great Britain, most of the Western countries have expressed their support for the Indian government and at least nominally condemned the Khalistan movement and its leader. Do you think Canada's reaction, like you said, is a mention of there's a sick diaspora within Canada? Yeah, so so the reasons why Canada is... um generally not going the same line as the U.S. and the U.K., is that they have a far bigger Sikh populace than those other two countries and a far more concentrated Sikh populace, which generally they have historically tried to placate over these other two countries. Mm -hmm. I also want to ask you, Christian, more broadly about India's global perception going into this sort of event or crisis because that may affect how Prime Minister Modi decides to move forward and whether that's issuing a crackdown or as we'll be looking at a little bit later in the episode, what he ended up doing the Indian government in turning the internet access off to the region in their efforts to apprehend Singh. What do you think of India's global perception at the moment? Historically, the Indian movement, uh, the Khalistan movement against India, didn't have any support really until the Golden Temple Massacre. After that, they did start to gain a lot more support. However, most major countries, even now, support India, even if they believe that the Khalistan movement is right, or even if they believe that Khalistan deserves its nation state. Politically, it's just more expedient for them to align themselves with India. That being said, India has been a subject of controversy in the global stage right now, especially with how they're interacting with the war in Ukraine. They have continued to supply Russia trading with their natural gas, being one of the only trade partners that still trades with Russia. It has allowed Russia's economy to sustain itself, and that has been met with a lot of criticism. I want to turn to the point that I tried to mention earlier, Christian, that you were dressing up the Indian government turning the internet off in their efforts to apprehend Singh. Why, Juliana, as our domestic analyst, why did the Indian government specifically do this, and how did this effort go? So it's 
pretty important to note that the Indian government shuts off the internet, and if not just the internet, they also will be able to turn off SMS texting to address the ongoing issues of violence and murders and crimes in specific communities. But this specific internet turnoff lasted quite a long time, more than usual, and this is in an attempt to stop different Amrit Paul Singh's followers to try and take him out of the country so that they can't prosecute him. And it's really not super effective to use to apprehend a criminal. They've tried multiple times. His followers even live streamed a car chase, which was pretty interesting amidst this shutdown. Indian government defends this shutdown as a tool to prevent public unrest and the spread of misinformation, but it doesn't really do much. Does this shutdown by the Indian government violate any rules within India's laws or constitution specifically? So this is really interesting because Article 19 of the Indian Constitution states that all citizens have the right to freedom of speech and the freedom to assemble peacefully without arms and to form associations or unions to freely throughout the territory of India. But subsection two of that same article states that, quote, reasonable restrictions on the exercise of the right to free speech in the interest of sovereignty and integrity of India, end quote, is deemed necessary, basically, which many free speech activists have seen this as an act of silencing the public and calling it unconstitutional, even though it's technically legally allowed. It could be a violation of free speech within India, but it's still technically allowed by the Constitution to a certain extent. And it's worth noting, as you said, Juliana, that the Indian government has used this approach in the past, even though it's not been effective as they would want it to be. I do want to go back, Juliana, to a point we kind of left off earlier on just tensions within the Indian government and the Indian government's military crackdown. Because I know when I've like looked at research in this event, an historical event that gets mentioned to me is Operation Blue Star. Can you give some of the background on that? So Operation Blue Star is an anti-Sikh program of 1984, but it lasted a little bit longer than that. And the lack of justice thereafter have left a deep psychological wound in the mind of many Sikhs and have further fueled the militant movement or the support for the Khalistan movement. And the operation was carried out under the orders of the prime minister at the time, Gandhi, was done to save the sanctity of the holy site, the Golden Temple, by eliminating the Sikh extremist leader at the time and his armed militant group that took over the temple. And just for our listeners out there to clarify, the Golden Temple is the holiest shrine within Sikhism. I want to kind of focus back in on after giving kind of that history and background to the current most recent events of the current state of play. I guess I'll turn to you, Christian. You kind of gave a preview of that earlier, but what are the perceptions of the current Sikh protests globally? And is there any outside factors or influences that could be secretly supporting any Sikh separatist movement? Perception varies. Generally, people are supportive of Sikh protests, especially the Sikh diaspora in whichever country you're in. Specifically, there have been protests against embassies, against Indian embassies in various countries, the United States, um, the Indian embassy in Vancouver, Canada, um, the Indian embassy in Great Britain as well. Additionally, there have been some 
secretive elements, some clandestine elements that are supporting or have been alleged to support Sikh separatists. The most notable of these is Pakistan. And this is essentially an open secret in the global community. Almost everyone knows that Pakistan supports the Khalistan movement, whether they're being, whether they're engaging in extremist acts at the time or not. Pakistan almost always supports them because of their bleed India strategy, just trying to separate the country that is their main rival. There are more allegations as well that the CIA supports Khalistan. This is more questionable. Um, because this idea was put in Indira Gandhi's head by Soviet agents, who of course have their own reasons for wanting to discredit the CIA. So it's possible, yes, that they supported six separatists, but there is no certainty, unlike with Pakistan, where everyone knows that's the case. Mm-hmm. Moving away from the global perception, thank you, Christian. Um, you had mentioned earlier, Juliana, some unique interactions of uh, the current protest leader saying with the police and police chases being live streamed to a certain extent. Do you want to go more more deeply into these interactions with the police that these protests have had and Singh himself has had? So specifically within within this year, the Khalistan movement and Singh has gained a lot of popularity and notoriety amongst the global community, especially in February of this year. Amrit Paul Singh and others in his group of higher level officials within the Khalistan movement were accused of kidnapping, criminal intimidation, and battery adjacent charges. They're about the same thing as battery to the United States, but there's a couple different names for them in the Indian report. And two days later, one of Singh's close associates were arrested. So hundreds of armed supporters stormed into a police complex after marching in the town and then a violent riot began because they are all armed. It was very violent and about half a dozen police officers were injured in this riot. And since then, he's been on the run and to find him, authorities have deployed thousands of paramilitary police and restricted the internet and mobile messaging services across the state. Many of Singh supporters have posted on social media one video, as I previously stated, was live streamed, showed the leader being chased by po- the police through wheat fields in Punjab. And Singh's father also supports his son, posting on Twitter that stating that all Punjabs, quote, raise their voice against the injustice against him and stand with him, end quote. And his post quickly went viral because of it. Yep. So thank you, Velocity, Juliana the physical altercations between police and protesters and things like that often breaking out into violence. His Singh's own interactions with the police of being accused of different crimes and everything and associates. And in general, the Khalistan movement with India of India cracking down and trying to outlaw certain activities. And it is outlawed in India, if I'm correct. Right, Juliana? Yes, it's deemed a terrorist organization. Mm-hmm. and a national security threat, I imagine, as well. Do you think there's much farther that the Indian government can go in trying to militarily or use paramilitary forces to crack down on the current protests? This is a very unique situation, and I don't know if they're going to ever be able to completely apprehend or contain this movement of Khalistan because it's so popular and it's popular globally and I believe it won't work out in the Indian government's favor. Yeah, that kind of gets into the final questions as we try and summarize the episode, Juliana and Christian, of what I want to ask you guys. Of First off, 
and kind of your final reactions after we summarize all the material earlier is how do you think this situation will develop personally? Do you see any end game occurring within a certain period of time? Um, I'll come to you first, CJ, on that. Yeah, so I think that um, it definitely depends on how much these protesters in Canada and the United States and in Great Britain continue their protests and pressure their politicians. If they can successfully do that and increase support for the Khalistan movement, or at least Singh, that would definitely aid the Khalistan movement in establishing their own state, or at least make India think twice about arresting him, about condemning him how they have. Do I think that will happen? I think it's unlikely. I would imagine that this, these protests will fade away and Singh will likely be arrested or flee the country. But it's it's quite possible that they will end up um, influencing India to create a new state. Uh, your reaction, Juliana? Uh, I agree with Christian. I think that the Khalistan movement is going to need a little bit more traction, especially globally, in order for there to be actual progress made for the people who believe in the movement and I agree that Singh will probably either be arrested or he will flee the country and incite more riots and lead this movement from afar. I know you had mentioned earlier Juliana that um, Singh had or the Khalistan movement there was not enough Sikhs within the Punjab region to sustained the Khalistan or this dream of a Khalistan state alone. Do you think that is part of the why the Khalistan movement will depend so much on international support to gain any traction either towards their own independent state or autonomous region, so to speak? Yes, I believe that there needs to be the numbers to back up the entire movement as a whole. There can't just be a few loud minority that attempts to make this huge autonomous state or region that is going to be run by this religion. Um, Another question that I wanted to ask um, as we kind of wind down in our episode is, uh, will it take a change of government within India for there to be any progress on the Khalistan movement or for any sort of come to the negotiating table? Because we mentioned Prime Minister Modi in this episode before, but it's the perception is globally is that Prime Minister Modi has not been the most receptive to the Sikh movement or any things like that, and especially to uh, other sorts of minorities in this country. He's been portrayed by or by many of his opponents as a Hindu nationalist doing things, and he's also not bowed to international pressure on things such as you mentioned earlier, Christian. He is still trading actively with Russia despite the Russo-Ukrainian war and pressure from the West for him to cease those activities. Do you think a change in government is necessary for there to be any progress towards a resolution of this? I agree that the change in government is necessary, but frankly, I think that um, it really depends on how much the international community starts pressuring him or pressuring whoever takes over in India. And this is because unless there's pressure, he has no reason to concede to the Khalistan movement. It simply wouldn't make political sense for him or any of his successors to do so. But if the global community, whether it's through the UN or just um, some states in the West pressuring them himself or themselves, then I could see a change. I could see him conceding to the Khalistan movement. 
unfortunately, that's not the case. Most of the Western countries still uh, let them do that. Yeah, I believe that there needs to be more representation in the Indian government in order for six be seen more equally throughout India. And I agree with Christian that there needs to be more global traction, global influence on this community in order for it to become real or equality to be met. Well, this has been a great discussion on what I think is a very important topic. So Juliana, Christian, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Drew. What? Joining me now to round out some other headlines this week is our news briefer, Trisha Ballion. Hey, Trisha. Hi, Drew. Thank you for coming on the show. So what headlines do you have for us this week? So this week we have Australia espionage, man accused of passing information to foreign spies, UN center shelters displaced Ethiopian Tigrayans, French Constitutional Council clears retirement age rise to 64, and as many as 100 people were killed after military airstrikes hit the village in Myanmar. Lots of interesting stories to cover today then. Let's start with the news in Australia. Right, so after returning to Sydney from years of living abroad, IT specialist Alexander Sergo was arrested on the account of providing two foreign spies with national security information in exchange for payment. He met with these agents in Shanghai and gave the pair information regarding Australian defense, economic and national security, as well as their relations with neighboring countries. The Australian government has been urging anyone who may have more information regarding the two agents to come forward and has since sentenced Sergo to 15 years in prison. Definitely a development that could shift relations in the region. And what's going on in Ethiopia right now? So beginning in early March, Ethiopian forces from the Amhara region have been displacing ethnic Tigrayans with the estimated number of refugees growing up to 47,000. The Maiserbi area in the northern Tigray region of Ethiopia has been heavily disputed during an ongoing civil war between multiple ethnic communities. Despite a peace deal that has been agreed upon, a ceasefire for the region, thousands of citizens have fled or been forcibly removed from their homes and relocated to the town of Enda Bunga, in which an extremely damaged UN shelter has seen an overflow of refugees. Reports have stated that due to the overabundance of people and lack of aid, many of them are, quote, on the brink of starvation, end quote. A very pressing and unfortunate matter that will most likely continue to persist. And you mentioned developments in France? Following multiple days of vehement protest outside the Constitutional Council's building, President Macron's movement to increase the retirement age in France from 62 to 64 has officially been cleared. Macron has defended this action as an essential measure to be taken in order to prevent the pension system from collapsing, and the labor minister has promised to improve employment rates to compensate for the raise. However, many left-wing politicians have remained critical of the Constitutional Council for ignoring the disdain of the general public as shown in regards to the reforms. An interesting turn of events indeed that we'll be waiting to see the results of later on. And the conflict in Myanmar? So in February of 2021, Myanmar's military seized power from the elected government, which has launched the nation into a state of unrest ever since, with death tolls of civilians in the thousands. This has led to opponents of the army's rule becoming more prevalent, who have been met with extreme violence carried out by the military. The recent airstrikes were carried out against an opening ceremony that was held by opponents of the army rule and pro-democracy groups and resulted in the deaths of leaders of those opposing organizations. There doesn't seem to be an end to the violence in the near future, though the UN is taking actions to publicly condemn military leaders. Thank you very much for coming on, Tricia. Thanks for having me. Now that is all the time we have for today. Be sure to follow the Global Current on Instagram and LinkedIn for updates on upcoming shows. 
This show would not have been possible without our dedicated crew, executive producer Jasmine DeLeon, associate producers Eric Bunce and Kasha Kostraba, technical producers Andrew Okulia and Bobby Kyle, and of course your host, Drew Starbuck. The Global Current is brought to you by Seen Hall University. As always, keep it current with us and catch us on the waves every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. on 89.5 FM WSOU. Until next time, thank you.